This is Ryan Underwood in the studio with From the Frontline. Tonight, we will discuss the war on whites and farmers in South Africa. Elon Musk recently drew worldwide attention to the EFF's chant, Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer. This has highlighted the ongoing war against white Africans and farming in Southern Africa. Tonight, we are joined in the studio with Dr. Peter Hammond. Welcome, Dr. Hammond. Thank you, Ron. Who is the EFF, and what happened at that recent rally in Johannesburg? Well, EFF stands for Economic Freedom Fighters. They are a new party. They've just been celebrating their 10th birthday, and in some ways they're acting like a 10-year-old. I mean, the maturity level is so low, it's unbelievable. Uh, the scene, which I think some of our viewers, may, listeners may have seen or else I would encourage them to go and and Google it and see uh, Malema leading uh, 90,000 EFF supporters in the stadium in Johannesburg in a chant, kill the boer, kill the farmer, shoot to kill, ba 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 ba, kill, shoot to kill. And you know, every now and then he shouts in Amandla, which is the which means power in Kosa, with the with the clenched fist rebellion salute. Now the EFF they call themselves the Economic Freedom Fighters. They're the third largest party in South Africa, political party. So this is a member of parliament and the leader of an opposition party in parliament, Julius Malemba, leading this. You would have thought that this is a crime and it's against parliamentary protocols and requirements and code of conduct. You would have thought. But apparently not at this time in this country under the particular hypocritical double standards they've got. I call them the Everything for Free Party, EFF, because they're primarily principles have been expropriation without compensation, confiscation of farms. Um, they are, and they want free everything, free free education, they want um, free tertiary education, they want basically everything for free, and regularly their supporters have gone on a rampage, looting stores, so calling the Economic Freedom Fund everything for free party seems to make more sense. Well, how they um, came about is they grew out of the ANC, and I think they are still the ANC. And I'll tell you why. In 2012, the African National Congress had a national convention, which is the biggest convention up in Petersburg, and they uh, planned the second phase of the revolution. And uh, they spoke about the need for the second phase of the revolution. Now, the first phase of the revolution is political control. Second phase of the revolution is economic control, spiritual control, everything control, control of farms, control of absolutely everything. And so you can see in the Soviet Union... In the French Revolution, they went from political revolution to then second phase of the revolution. You can see that's happening in Zimbabwe, for example. In Zimbabwe, at a certain point, once Mugabe had solidified political control, which included political, military, and police control, he started to work on invading the farms. In Red China, you can also see second phase of the revolution, where Mao Zedong in the Great Cultural Revolution started to do farm invasions, what they called land reform. And uh, basically, at this point, they decided to take out everything. In the second phase of the revolution, Mao Zedong even got rid of the other two leaders. There was a troika, three leaders. There was a president of, of communist China. There was the chairman. Mao Zedong was the chairman. And there was the head of the army. He got rid of the head of the military and the uh, president as traitors and became the chairman, became the only power, solidified everything in himself. 
And that was the second phase of the revolution. They killed about 68 million people in the second phase of the revolution and destroyed China's culture, history, economic capabilities, uh, started into famine, all sorts of things. Second phase of the revolution was also seen in Mozambique as well. And many places in communism, you can see there's always a second phase of the revolution. And so the ANC was discussing, we now needing the second phase of transformation. They often use the word transformation um, as a synonym for revolution. And for this, we need a vanguard of the revolution who will lead the struggle. And lo and behold, the very next year, the head of the Youth League, Julius Milema, who was an ANC leader, left the ANC and started the EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters, and adopted red berets, red T-shirts. Red was their slogan. And they made it clear, we're Marxists, Leninists, we are communists, and we are for expropriation without compensation. And also, very anti-white, this trademark was singing, kill the boer, kill the farmer, and uh, Bulele Ibunu, which is in Kosa, kill the white. Ibunu is white. As that's not just the boer, the farmer. Now, in South Africa, of course, boer is understood to be farmer because that's what the word means in Dutch and in Afrikaans. And it's been taken wider so that boer can mean any Afrikaner. So, for example, the British waged a war against the boers back in 1899-1902, which was called the Anglo-Boer War. Stephen Mitford Goodson, in his book uh, Genocide of the Boers, documented how the Rothschilds determined on a genocide of the Boers to, to reduce the Afrikaners from a majority population to a minority population. And they did this by the scorched earth, destroying, completely scorched earthing 30,000 farms and killing hundreds of thousands of cattle and horses and sheep and, and putting many poor women and children, something like 120,000 concentration camps, in which over 32,000 poor women died. Now, you can go to the Anglo-Boer War Museum and the Women's Monument in Bloemfontein, which I've done on numerous occasions, and you can see a very poignant view. So they've got this very um, inspiring women's monument, but they've also got a wall where they've got the names of all the Boer soldiers, the men who died in the Anglo-Boer War, over 5,000. On the front of the wall, the names, dates uh, of those who were killed in action. On the back, there's two sections, those who died of wounds and then those who died of sicknesses, diseases, also named. Well over 5,000 Boer men died in Anglo-Boer War. But facing that wall is a much bigger wall, much bigger, uh, with the names and dates and places of 32,000 Boer women and children who died in the same war, in British concentration camps mostly. And interestingly enough, when I went there, I even found three Hammonds, uh, a woman and two young children, uh, also on the wall of those who were victims of this British concentration camps. So there we have a war where six times more women and children died than men, which is absolutely extraordinary. How can that even happen? I don't even know if that's happened in Germany in the Second World War. A lot of civilians died, but, you know, in, in the Second World War, uh, vastly more German soldiers died as prisoners of war after the war than died in the six years of conflict during it. And that, of course, is outrageous and other losses describes the hideous conditions in the prison camps and most of those who went to the Soviet Union gulags and concentration camps never came back alive. Well, I've met some who did after 10 years of slave labor in Arctic hellholes of Siberia. Uh, but in the Anglo-Boer War Museum, uh, it documents how the death rate in the British concentration camp for the Boers was worse than that in any concentration camp in Europe on either side in the whole of the war. In that, 
They're people who survived the Second World War, and today we've got a few million survivors of these concentration camps, which is quite extraordinary because the numbers grow every year. Mostly they tend to die out by attrition, but uh, when it comes to Second World War, concentration camp survivors seem to keep around for perpetual years. Well, in the, as was documented by the brave Englishwoman Emily Harpouse, the death rate in the British concentration camps in South Africa was a quarter per year. So out of every thousand women and children, 250 died every year. That means in four years, everyone would be dead. That's worse than any concentration camp in Europe because you had people who survived all four, five, six years of the war and lived at the end. But the concentration camp in South Africa could not say, well, people were starving because of aerial bombardments or the trains had all been destroyed or there was a hunger blockade and you couldn't get food in. The British couldn't say that they dominated the harbours. There was no aerial bombardment. There weren't even aircraft yet. There was no excuse as to why they were dying in the British camps except that as Stephen Goodson documents in Genocide of the Boers, the Rothschilds insisted that the Boer population be brought down. Now, bear in mind, in 1900, the average Boer woman was having 12 to 13 or 14 children. The wife of Paul Kruger, the president of Transvaal, she had 17 children. So when you're wiping out young women at that stage, at this incredibly fertile time, this crippled the progress of the Boers to the extent that Today, the Boers are a minority, or the Afrikaans people are a minority in South Africa, whereas they would be the largest tribe in South Africa. They would outnumber the Zulus and the Khorza. We'd have eight to nine million Afrikaans people in South Africa today if it hadn't been for the death rate of the women and children during the Anglo-Boer War at that critical time in their life. So it was a form of genocide. It took a majority and turned them into a minority, all over control of gold and diamonds. So this happened before, and that's where the word Boer comes from. The British wages genocide against the Boers because the Rothschilds wanted them to for the golden diamonds, as is well documented by Stephen Goodson in his book, The Genocide of the Boers. But now we've got people calling for a new genocide of the Boers. And I'm particularly concerned about it because I've seen a genocide. I was in Rwanda. And uh, in Rwanda, uh, the Tutsi minority were targeted by the Hutu government. The Hutu were the majority. They demonized the Tutsi the Protestant minority, and they um, they start to dehumanize them, speaking about them being Inyenzis, which is cockroaches. And the radio and the newspapers were mobilized to just continually denigrate, blame the Tutsi minority for anything that was wrong in the whole country, until the Hutu majority were mobilized to slaughter them, and they did it by the hundreds of thousands. More people died from machete wounds in Rwanda in six weeks and have died from atomic weapons in all of history which is a phenomenal thought to just think about this low-tech genocide. And it was all from, from mobilizing the people to dehumanize and then to sing and chant and to get them to the point of wanting to kill their neighbors. To the extent that minister, I, I wrote the book Holocaust in Rwanda, which documented how ministers, even heads of denominations, even cardinals and bishops, organized their Hutu populations to slaughter their Tutsi congregants. And some of them are living under protection of France and Canada to this day, despite France and Canada having written and signed the anti-genocide treaty. When the French Minister of Foreign Affairs was asked to justify why France intervened to rescue many of the architects of genocide and gave them diplomatic sanction and political sanctuary to escape justice, and that why Canada and France won't extradite these war criminals and genocidal architects back to Rwanda to face justice. The answer of the French Minister of Foreign Affairs was, we were holding the line against for Francophone Africa against Anglophone Africa. 
translation. The genocidal lunatic spoke French and the victim spoke English. So that justified it, apparently. So when you suddenly get Malema jumping up and saying, kill the boer, kill the farmer, not only has that been done before, uh, but um, it's not just a song. People have been doing it. In fact, since uh, the ANC came to power, since Nelson Mandela became president, thousands of white South African farmers have been murdered. When I say murdered, that's an understatement. Tortured to death is more accurate. In fact, just after this last Saturday when we had Julius Malema leading 90,000 people and chanting, kill the boy, kill the farmer. And if you watch it in film with this entire stadium, just everyone wearing red, everyone with red berets and red shirts and they're all, all bouncing up and down and then they're chanting out, kill the boy, kill the farmer, a mandler. Shoot to kill, ba 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 ba. It looks absolutely demonic. And when you think the Boers have been targeted by the British Empire before for destruction, and uh, it's happened to the Rwandese, the Tutsi in Rwanda, during genocide in Rwanda, it makes one very, very concerned. Um, so that the EFF is using incendiary language. I don't know how this cannot be considered a crime, hate speech, incitement to violence, um, racism of the worst order. And you can think there are white people who've gotten jailed for saying something that a black person found offensive for a word. And yet there are black people who have said, we should kill all the whites, and nothing happens. So this is pretty serious. Is there a broader attack on whites and agriculture in the modern West? There certainly is. And if you look at the um, Agenda 21 and Agenda um, 2030, and the Rio um, Earth Summit, which Gorbachev had a key role in, in leading and, and writing the new Sermon on the Mount for Humanity, which is basically about they've got to bring the world population way down. We've got too many people, 7 billion people, or is it 8 billion by now? They want to bring it down to 500 million, which means that leaves about 7.5 billion surplus, uh, useless ETs, oxygen thieves, people who need to be gotten rid of one way or the other. And so uh, the Agenda 21, this whole World Economic Forum, um, Earth Summit goal is being to deindustrialize the West and to um, swamp the West with immigrants from third world countries and to bring down a population of particularly white Western European Christians. And there's a multi-pronged attract on it. Promoting abortion, of course, has brought down the fertility of whites. Now, my grandparents' generation would have had four, five, six children. My great-grandparents would have been having 12 children. Um, my parents had two. And, uh, well, I've changed the trend because my wife and I had four children. Uh, so um, there are some exceptions. But on average, we've seen Westerners move from having multiple children to the average woman in Europe today is having 1.2 children uh, on average. I think America is something like 1.4 or is it 1.8? But most of that are Hispanics who've moved in. White Americans are about to become a minority. And that has been a deliberate plan of Democratic Party under Biden to bring in vast amounts of people who they think will be easy to manipulate by offering them lots of free things to be able to change the demographics of America so that they can actually um, have people who will uh, be their slaves forever. And... Uh, you might have heard the slogan, give a man a fish, uh, you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Uh, give a man someone else's fish, he'll vote for you for a lifetime. And uh, 
so I think this is what uh, the Democrats are trying to do, is they try and change the demographics. Uh, the LGBTQ, sterilizing uh, white children, um, gen gentle mutilation, castrating males, um, um, mastectomies for women, uh, trying to turn them into effectively sterilized individuals who can't possibly procreate anymore. This also brings down uh, the uh, uh, level of, of growth. Demographics is being changed dramatically. And at the same time, bring in huge amounts of people from third world countries whose stable countries have been destabilized by Western economic policies, bombings, wars, and so on. And these tsunamis of people moving into Europe, such as just take Barack Hussein Obama's um, unbelievably irresponsible spring, uh, Arab Spring back in uh, 2011 was it, when they started this war on Libya and on Egypt and destabilized these very friendly countries. In fact, Egypt was called the cornerstone of stability in the Middle East and one of the most important countries in history in, in the Bible. And to have worked to overthrow the democratically elected leader and replace them with the Muslim Brotherhood, who were a bunch of terrorists. In fact, the Muslim Brotherhood, now they've been overthrown by the people of of Egypt are now back relegated to a terrorist group, which Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, said that that in fact um, Muslim Brotherhood were a force for peace and stability in the, in the Middle East. Muslim Brotherhood burned down 96 Christian churches in one weekend in Egypt. They murdered the previous president of Egypt, Sadat, uh, during a national event. They, while he was watching a parade of his soldiers, they got out of their military vehicle and machine gunned a presidential box, not just killing a president, who was a Nobel Peace Prize winner, but many others too. And uh, that's the kind of people that uh, the US government wanted in power. They overthrew stable governments in the Middle East and replaced them with destabilized governments and led to millions of refugees pouring into Europe, which is creating a demographic time bomb for the future. And of course, there were traitors like... Uh, Angela Merkel, who are happy to welcome them in to completely change the demographics and the future of Germany. Um, in fact, there were German government leaders saying, we must bring in more foreigners uh, and we must make sure that there's no more Nazis being bred. And by that, they meant no more ethnic Germans. And this is German government officials wanting to destroy their own constituencies by changing demographics, by bringing in lots of these migrants who are not just being welcomed in, but giving hordes of free things. They're given masses of free euros, Wi-Fi, food, accommodation, putting them up in very nice places while um, uh, their own people might be suffering and struggling. So this is, this is not just economic suicide, it's demographic suicide of the West. And you can see there's been a war against uh, whites in the West through guilt manipulation, through the cancel culture, trying to destroy people's heritage, pull down monuments, rewrite history books, demonize the people of the past. And uh, so I think it is a broader war. Also think of the targeting of food, farmers, and fuel in the West. And just take the ne Netherlands, where you have the ancestors of the Boers of the Afrikaner, who are some of the finest farmers in the world. And Netherlands, interesting enough, is the second largest exporter of agricultural products in the world, just after America. Considering what a small country the Netherlands is, that's extraordinary. It's a 100 euro... Uh, 100 million euro, uh, sorry, 100 billion euro a year industry, the agriculture of the Netherlands, something like 160 billion dollars a year. Now, to that extent, 
the Mark Rutter, who's a World Economic Forum global leader, a protege of Klaus Schwab, he determined to close down most of the farms in the Netherlands. And his goal was close most of the farms down, put these farmers out of work, and turn many of these farms into low-cost housing for the immigrants. How insane is that? They wanted half of the cattle in the Netherlands to be euthanized, killed. And they wanted to, you know, plow fields that are being used to feed not just the Netherlands, but people all over the world. Well, you know, South Africa used to export food, and uh, not lately. So you can see that this is totally insane. Just to put things into perspective, when Nelson Mandela became president, South Africa had 70,000 white farmers, 70,000 white farmers who fed 100 million people. Now, South Africa's population was only 25 million, so they were feeding four times more than the South African population. They were feeding the Congo. I mean, our farmers were feeding people in all neighboring countries across Southern Africa. Well, today, after a war on the farmers by the government for years, and it's not just stopping subsidies that help farmers, it's been um, penalizing farmers and, and targeting them, including singing, kill a boar, kill a farmer. Well over 4,000 farmers and their family members have been murdered in the last 28 years under ANC rule in South Africa. And when we say murdered, we should say tortured to death. So in the week after um, Julius Malema led this 90,000 chant, seven farmers and their family members were tortured to death, including an old couple in the Cape who were in their 70s, tortured to death, multiple amounts of stab wounds, and then set light and burned while alive. Why would you do that? I mean, what possible motive can it be except sheer demonic hatred? And to get back to our analogy of the broader attack on whites and agriculture in the West, in Rhodesia, we used to, we had 5,400 white commercial farms who were not just feeding all 10 million people in Zimbabwe, but they were feeding people across the border all over. Zimbabwe was exporting food. Biggest employer, farmers, biggest producers of, of not just food, but foreign exchange, the farmers. Well, just from a sheerly, sheer anti-communist, anti-white communist perspective, Mugabe declared war on the white farms. He started expropriation without compensation. He stole 5,400 farms. In many cases, farmers being murdered and uh, um, in some cases tortured to death. And at the end of it, Zimbabwe led the world in inflation. Um, I've got upstairs here a $100 trillion note. $100 trillion note. We've got $50 billion notes and so on too. But the $100 trillion note was after they'd knocked 16 zeros off the currency. And so it was... Literally, um, you couldn't buy a loaf of bread for $100 trillion in 2009. That's the kind of success rate of killing the farmer. When you have a war against farmers, believe it or not, the result is less food. And so no farmer, no food, and the result is famine. And this is predictable, but that is the um, Agenda 21. This is the uh, World Economic Forum's uh, future where you'll own nothing and be happy, so says Klaus Schwab. Well, what they did to the Zimbabwe farmers is what the EFF wants to do to South Africa. They said they want to take all the white farms. And if they succeeded in that, right now we've got 25,000 white commercial farmers in South Africa, and they're feeding 40 million people. That's not as good as feeding 100 million in the past, but 40 million is still pretty impressive for 25,000 farmers. But our population has doubled. We now don't have 25 million. We now have 60 million people in the country. So South Africa now has to import food. We used to be a food exporter. We were feeding four times our population. Now we can't even provide enough food for our own people. So the war against farmers doesn't make any sense. 
If you live in Switzerland or in Austria, they protect their farmers. And in fact, people aren't allowed to sell their farms to be anything else. You can't sell your farm to become a strip mall or a low-density housing kind of complex. Your farm must stay in agriculture if you're in Austria or Switzerland because they know the farms are the essential backbone of the country. In Switzerland, the farms are considered essential for national survival. And they've, they've got to be able to, if the whole of Europe is in at war, which has happened a couple of times in the last century, uh, that Switzerland can provide for themselves totally. So they need total economic agricultural self-sufficiency. And so Switzerland helps their farmers and protects their farms. But South Africa is working on a destroying their farmers, as is the Netherlands right now, as is Zimbabwe. So the broader attack on whites and agriculture is seen in vigorous promotion of affirmative action, black economic empowerment. You're too male, you're too pale, you can't get a job. And uh, impoverishing whites, but also promoting abortion, promoting infanticide, LGBTQ perversion, making sure they do anything except uh, increase demographically. And the goal is a world where there'll be no whites. And there are people even say, uh, such as the daughters of Barack Hussein Obama said, they look forward to the time when there won't be any more whites in the world. It's been rightly said that we are in a world war of worldviews. What worldview or ideology is behind the anti-white and anti-agrarian hatred we see today? Well, we can certainly say Marxism. In fact, it's more than Marxism. It would be Illuminati, Sabbatianism. Uh, what you're seeing here is an occultic hostility for the people of God, an occultic hostility for those made an image of God who've been the most used in spreading the gospel, printing Bibles, translating Bibles, who led the greatest century of missions, who took the gospel to all the parts of the world. The hatred for the once Christian nations of Europe and North America and South Africa are absolutely intense. So what we're seeing is an anti-Christian ideology. It's secular humanism, yes. It's Marxism, to be more specific. But more than Marxism, uh, you can see Sabbatianism even behind that, which, by which I mean Illuminati, occultic, antichrist, paganism. We hear many talking about racism in South Africa. What is the etymology, the history of the word racist? Well, interestingly, if you pick up your Webster's 1828 dictionary, you won't find the word racist in it or racism. You could drop that in the foot of some race-basing character. But uh, you also won't find transgender, cisgender, and a whole lot of other terms that have become pervasive lately. We should ask about that, something that nowhere in the thousands of years of recorded world history have some concepts been talked about, and suddenly it's so important. You won't find the word racism in your uh, Bible concordance. You can look through your concordance, and unless you've got some really whacked-out new translation I've never heard of, uh, but you certainly won't in the King James or New King James find racism in the Bible. And so uh, where does this come from? It actually comes from Leon Trotsky, the hero of the revolution, so-called the head of the Red Army of the Bolshevik Revolution in the Soviet Union. He came up with that dear racist to silence anyone who was a um, who was anti-communist, anti-Bolshevik. Because if you were if you were anti-communism, you were obviously anti-Semitic. They said that because initially um, most of the leaders of the Bolshevik Revolution were Jewish. And so if you were against communism, if you were against murdering the Tsar, if you were against um, destroying churches, you obviously were an anti-Semitic bigot and deserved to be killed and so on. So we have taken the word racist, and you could make an acrostic with it, rather annoying communist-inspired silencing tactic. And 
Just bear in mind, Leon Trotsky came up with this to silence uh, any criticism of communism. And today, if you fight communism in this country, you'll be called a racist because you're uh, because so happens the communist leaders in our country right now are black. Not that there have been lots of white communists and Jewish communists, but they will interpret if you're against communism, well, if you're against pornography, you must be a racist as well because um, Jewish people control the pornography industry. So if you're against uh, pornography, you must be an anti-Semitic naughty. And so there's a lot of this kind of word games and guilt manipulation to silence people from criticizing their tactics. To understand what they're doing, you've got to understand cultural Marxism. Back in the 1930s and 1920s, the Frankfurt School of Marxism got started in Germany. These were Marxists of the quality of people like Marcuse and uh, uh, even um, the head of the Italian Communist Party. Um, I'm just forgetting his name for a moment. Uh, the, uh, the Italian... Communist Party leader, he came up with the idea of cultural Marxism, that Lenin got lucky, that um, Vladimir Lenin had an unusual collection of coalition of forces where everything worked together for him, but you're not going to get this coalition of things coming together so that you'll be able to have a Bolshevik revolution like uh, what happened in Soviet Union back in 1917 in Western Europe. Western Europe's too Christian. The only way to defeat the West is you've got to You've got to Marxize the inner man. We've got to, we've got to have a long march of Marxists to the five cultural carrying institutions of the West: education, entertainment, news media, religious institutions, political institutions. These are the five culture-transforming uh, uh, institutions in the West that the Marxists set for infiltration. Especially education, entertainment, news media, and they targeted Hollywood as particularly a major, major goal. Lenin, Stalin said, we must turn the cinemas of the West into uh, temples of atheism. I remember the name Gramsci. It was Ant Antonio Gramsci of the, of the uh, Italian Communist Party who said, we need to Marxize the inner man. And he spoke about the termite strategy, which today we call the Gramsci strategy, where he said, we must get people to think of everything without reference to God or Christ or the Bible. And we need to Marxize the inner man. We've got to get Western people to no longer think in a Christian way but to think in an anti-Christian way, not just a non-Christian way, but an anti-Christian way, which they've obviously succeeded in doing. Just look at the hostility to Christianity all over. And Hollywood has even popularized blasphemy, which to think that you could have popularized blasphemy, which was a criminal, even a capital offense in much of Europe for much of history. And we've gotten to the point where you can blaspheme the name of Jesus in university, but you cannot speak of him in a respectful way in the average university classroom. So, the Gramsci strategy has been super successful. Of course, the Frankfurt School did move to Harvard and Princeton, and they infiltrate the West dramatically, and that's one way cultural Marxism. Uh, Marcuse, who's part of the cultural Marxist gang in, in Frankfurt School, also said, we need to use foul language and cursing like verbal grenades against the um, bourgeois, and it's important to bring ugliness into art and to bring perversion, immorality, to celebrate everything from rape and incest and every kind of uh, fornication and, and vileness in art and entertainment, and that includes the plays and films and uh, music and art, and that this is one way to break down the morals of the West will help to mark us in a man to be like the termite strategy, the Gramsci strategy. So even foul language became a weapon in the hands of these Marxists. It's quite disconcerting that you get a lot of conservatives and Christians 
who indulge in speaking f with foul language, and I don't know that they realise they've actually fallen into a Marxist trap. It's quite sad to see even someone like Tucker Carlson, who um, we respect on many political levels, and yet he uses foul language frequently, even on his TV broadcast, which you just think, does he understand that's actually falling totally into the hands of the very people he's speaking out against? And he wants to be against the globalist New World Order, and he often is, but yet he slipped into that and it's just through the brainwashing of, of the media. If you watch Antichrist films produced by cocaine-sniffing drug addicts and pedophiles from Hollywood, well, of course, it's going to get into your mind at some stage. And incessantly, they're putting foul language in and blasphemy to such an extent that the average Christian thinks in those terms and reacts uh, saying the very terms they've learned from from Hollywood. That just shows how much they've been on an anti-Christian campaign. What does the Bible teach on race relations? Well, we're told to love our neighbors, and uh, plainly, you cannot um, hate your neighbor and call yourself a Christian. The Bible says if you hate uh, someone, then there's no li life or light within you, because um, if you hate your brother whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you have not seen? And we are told in the Bible that the command is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, to love your neighbors yourself. We told in Numbers 15, 15, that's easy to remember, Numbers 15, 15, the community is to have the same rules for you and for the alien living amongst you. This is a lasting ordinance for all generations to come. You and the alien or foreigner shall have the same laws before the Lord. The same laws and the same regulations will apply both to you and to the alien living amongst you. So you can't have, you can't have BBBEE -E, racial quotas, um, affirmative action, where one rule applies to some and, and other rules apply to the other. That's against biblical principles. When you're told to have a ministry of reconciliation, as God has reconciled us with him, we should be reconciling uh, one another. We've got a ministry of reconciliation in Christ. And so, plainly, in the Bible we see only Christianity, only biblical Christianity, offers a rational basis for opposing racism and for pursuing justice and equality before the law. That's a biblical principle. Whereas Darwinism is telling you that different people have evolved to different stages and that you know some people are less human than others. So Karl Marx has been used to inspire Marxism where you know, to kill a few million people is not serious. So as Lenin said, it doesn't matter if two-thirds of Russia die as long as the remaining third are communists. And as Joseph Stalin said, the death of one person is a tragedy, but the death of a million is just a statistic. And so, yes, um, that, I think, is, is what's going on right now, is complete lack of appreciation for the value of, of life and not looking at people as people for whom Christ died and people who were created by God that we are meant to love and reach for the gospel, but like coming to hate your neighbor. So uh, racism in the Bible is not talked about. It's not even possible because just to hate someone is not acceptable. So when you start to hate people, that's obviously completely unbiblical. Now, the Bible does distinguish between races, just as it distinguishes between genders. And even in heaven, you'll see that people of every race, tribe, language, and nation will be gathered singing praise of the Lord. And so it's not that there's something wrong to have differentiations. And the Bible does distinguish between different races and even told the people of Israel not to marry uh, other nations around them and to maintain their, their demographic purity. So there's nothing wrong with having distinctions, but to hate to have malice towards people of other races, that is completely unbiblical and should not be possible. 
And yet you'll find people in churches who say they belong to the EFF. I mean, can you imagine a group that's based on hatred? In fact, the EFF has had a big slogan ban out there, hatred. We must have pure hatred and to stain our guns red with the blood of, of our enemies. And just speaking about quoting from Che Guevara, his quote on the need to be a cold-blood killing machine, to have hate, and to chant out, kill the boer, kill the farmer, kill the white. I've seen worse than that too. Um, when I was in 1993 following a march of protesters, uh, they were marching in Kenilworth to the Claremont police station after the St. James Massacre when five black PAC terrorists of the of upper terrorists of the Pan-African Congress um, attacked St. James, fired machine gun bullets into the congregation, hurtled hand grenades with nails strapped around for extra fragmentation impact. And uh, these people were stopped and made to retreat when one of our missionaries shot back with a snub-nosed 38 revolver. And then uh, when they were outside waiting to attack the people as they fled, um, he shot again and they fled down the road. And they cancelled their attack on a neighbouring church, Christchurch Kenilworth, that they were planning to attack immediately afterwards. And uh, after that, I saw a group of Pan-African Congress supporters marching in, in Lansdowne Road, going, they walked past St. James Church, and then they went down to the police station where one of the terrorists was captured, Micaiah, uh, who had been machine gun in the congregation, the one who had been wounded by our missionary, Sean. And there they were marching, chanting, one church, one bomb, one minister, one bullet. This is not just anti-white, this is anti-Christian at its core. And by the way, amongst the people marching was a person who later became mayor of Cape Town, uh, Patricia DeLille, who my children called Cruella DeLille. But Patricia DeLille was marching under one church, one bomb, one minister, one bullet. South Africa has numerous black tribes within its territory, as well as both the English, Afrikaans, Indian and Cape Colored populations. How has South Africa dealt with racial friction in times past? Well, originally, of course, when the whites arrived in the Cape, there were only white people here and there were some of the Bushmen, um, more Aboriginal, more yellow people rather than, than black. The black people never regarded the Bushmen as, as black. In fact, the Bushmen were hunted for sport and, and uh, exterminated wherever the Nguni or black Bantu tribes went. So we see the rock paintings cave paintings all the way up Africa, even to East Africa of the Bushmen. So the Bushmen used to live, and the Khoisan, the um, Hottentots, used to live all over East Africa, but they got exterminated. And the only place you'll still find Hottentots and, and Bushmen today is in the Western Cape, where whites became majority and got there before the blacks did and provided them with protection. In every one of the frontier wars, there were seven frontier wars in, against the Khoza on the eastern frontier of the Cape. Um, and... In every one of those wars, the Khoisan and the Bushmen joined with the whites in fighting against the, their historic enemies, the Nguni or tribes of the Bantu, in this case the Khoza. So uh, the, uh, the whites protected the Bushmen and the Hottentots from the Bantu, uh, and they still flourish in Namibia and Western Cape because the whites protected them. And at a certain point, the whites started to create homelands. In other words, they, they delineated where the tribes were living and said, this is their tribal trust land, this is their area. This was done, Rhodesia done Southwest Africa, Deutsche Zuid-West Africa and South Africa, where they recognized this area is Zulu. This is Zuland, the kingdom of Zuland. Whites aren't allowed to own property there. 
whites can't open up businesses there, Indians can't open up businesses, only only Zulu businessmen can open up businesses there so that they wouldn't be exploited by others, and sought to build industries close to their borders that they wouldn't have to travel far for work and could still be with their families that evening. And so there was, especially under Hendrik, was a lot of policy of what he called separate development. The philosophy being good fences make good neighbours to avoid friction. And by respecting people that they each have their own cultural um, and educational facilities, the old South Africa, the so-called apartheid South Africa, built universities for the blacks, built them their own cultural centres, um, and of course encouraged their building of churches and schools uh, so that uh, what you had was a high standard of living in these tribal trust lands that you have now uh, because they used to run their own affairs without discrimination or interference. Their chiefs ran their areas and they had their tribal systems and things worked. Uh, well, of course, the communists hate that because they're egalitarian and they wanted everything leveled and they didn't want chiefs and dunas and kings. And so, of course, as revolutionaries have always been, they sought to undermine that. But the old South Africa actually had, we had 11 national languages, uh, which was divided into nine different black homelands, Venda, Bapuditswana, Siskai, Transkai, KwaZulu, and so on, Kwakwa. Uh, these were different areas where they, each tribe ruled their own area, had their own universities, had their own sports teams and cultural distinctives. And uh, they had free trade agreements within South Africa, and they could get full independence when they voted in a referendum for that. And so you saw the old South Africa give full independence to Bapuditswana, Venda, Siskai, and Transkai. And they had their own armies, they had their own police force, everything, and they ran their countries actually quite efficiently compared to the mess we've got today. So South Africa did used to have a separate but equal a good fences make good neighbours policy where they tried to avoid friction to the extent that the mine workers who would travel from all over the, the continent to come to work in the mines, gold mines and so on, they would have a hostel for Zulus, a hostel for Kosa, and they wouldn't mix them because there would often be fights between. You might get uh, MPs from one group, that's armies from one group fighting the other, and, and it could be quite bloody, actually. There's a lot of tensions between some of these tribes, and it didn't survive um, uh, very well. There's still a lot of hostility to this day between different tribes. Where I grew up in... in what is today Zimbabwe and Rhodesia and Madibiland, a Madibili nurse would not serve a Shauna patient. A Shauna nurse would not serve a Madibili patient. There was just this, this you know, you're not my tribe. I, they wouldn't serve them. So it didn't matter if they were professional like a nurse. There was this idea that uh, you can't expect me to serve my tribal enemies. And that's the way it was. That's the way it is to this day. Uh, except that now um, there's more violence between them because the fences and the barriers have been moved. I think people feel safer when they've got their own areas. Good fences can make good neighbours, but when you've pushed everything together in a melting pot, the result is surely more friction and more violence ultimately. How can our heroes pray for South Africa in general and the Cape of Good Hope in particular? Well, we need some calmer heads to prevail because right now we've got a taxi war going on in the Cape. We've got... Uh, a lot of people whipping up hostility. You can imagine when you've got a, a political leader, member of parliament, chanting and having people chant with him, 90,000 filling a stadium with kill the boer, kill the farmer, a mandler, shoot to kill, bah, bah. I mean, imagine that kind of, could this happen anywhere? Um, could you imagine somebody standing up and saying, kill the Jews, shoot the Jews or, or the Muslims or the 
um, blacks or something like that, would there be an outcry in America or Australia if somebody did that? And yet they can sing that about whites. And somehow you can torture to death whites while screaming, you know, uh, die, you white bastard, and things like this. Pardon me quoting, but that's what they said. And uh, it's direct translation from the Afrikaans, quoting them uh, that while they are torturing death grandmothers, and sometimes their children in front of them, what can you do when that goes on? So living, just to give you an idea of how we live, uh, my daughter, uh, I never sent any of my children to university because our universities are so corrupt. We went to a private Christian uh, independent tertiary institutions. But because they have a, a ballroom dancing fraternity up at University of Cape Town, my daughter Daniela was up there um, in a ballroom dancing uh, group society on the University of Cape Town 2015 when they started the Roads Must Fall campaign. And a lot of young EFF supporters poured into their hall and tried to pull off oil paintings. These are original oil on canvas arts, irreplaceable art. And they were pulling them down to destroy them and to pile them on a bonfire outside on the steps of Jamison Hall. And my daughter, Daniela, who's an artist herself, physically stopped them, protected these paintings, took them out of her hands and pushed them out the door. And, you know, in one side, I'm extremely proud of my daughter for her stand. And she's shocked that none of the males around uh, supported her. And they, they looked afraid. And she said to me, Dad, they looked like they hated me. I said, Daniela, they do hate you. I said, Dad, they looked like they wanted to kill me. I said, Daniela, they do want to kill you. I said, Dad, they looked like they were demon-possessed. I said, Daniela, I'm convinced they are demon-possessed. Now, we're living in that environment. Every day, I have to live in condition orange or red and uh, strap on my firearm and be alert and have spare ammunition. And I've stayed with farmers in South Africa. In the Orange Free State, I remember staying with a farming family one night and how at every night they prepare for wars. The sun sets, uh, the gates get locked, the the dogs who stay outside and the dogs who stay inside, they've got the burglar bars, security gates, they've got inner security gates, and each child and the wife has their a battle post and what they're meant to do, and they've got sometimes sandbags out in the children's room by the baby's crib. So if an RPG rocket is fired, that the baby uh, could be safe in the crib from the shrapnel. Children have been killed in the crib, for example, Radish from RPGs fired in the children's room during attacks. So can you imagine parents living like this they and their children are at risk on a daily basis. They're living like this. And the um, the tension is puts on you that you could at any moment be pulled from your car by people who want to tear you apart. And so you've got to be ready to respond in an instant to a threat to life and limb to yourself or your children or your grandchildren or your neighbor. And you've got to be able to fire and shoot fast and accurately. And many times you pray, Lord, when the time comes, make me fast and accurate. This is the environment we live in. So... Praying for peace of mind and clear heads is important. A lot of people have got contingency plans, belong in neighborhood watches, and there's community groups and militias that's basic commanders and so on to protect farming communities and neighbors work together. To understand this, it's important to be informed, it's important to be interceding, and it's important to be involved and see what we can do. I would say one thing that people could do right now is, like Elon Musk, make known the war on whites and farmers in South Africa. Right now, if you can use your social media postings, speak to your friends and family, mobilize your church to pray and to intervene and to complain to your elected representatives. Your, your, If you live in America, your State Department is giving aid and comfort to the very government that's oppressing the white people. Just like Elon Musk said, why are you so silent, President Ramaphosa? How can you not condemn this? How can you not deal with this? How is it that you're not prosecuting this kind of incitement to violence by a member of parliament? 
And we need more people to demand of their elected representatives, whether you live in the Netherlands or England or Australia. Mobilize your elected representatives or contact directly the South African embassy in your area. Uh, see what you can do to mobilize more prayer and action. As the Lord told us in Luke 18, even an unjust judge will do what is right in response to persistent prayer and pressure. We should always pray and not give up. And even though this judge did not fear God or care about men, yet because of the persistence of this widow, yet he saw that justice was done only because of persistent prayer. A prayer and publicity provide protection for the persecutors. Please tell our hearers how they can learn more about Frontline Fellowship and get in touch with you. You can visit www.frontlinemissionsa.org. That's short for South Africa, so frontlinemissionsa.org. If you're in America, you can uh, visit www.frontlinemissionna, NA, short for North America, frontlinemissionna.org, and you'll be able to also get many of our books available from North America, which you can order uh, and of course, it's a lot cheaper to have books shipped from within America, from Florida in this case, uh, rather than across the Atlantic, especially as the South African Postal Service has now been destroyed by affirmative action, just like Eskom, just like so much of what's going on in the government. Uh, they have used BBBEE to destroy South African Airways and so many other. Even the post office now is effectively bankrupt. Millions of letters not delivered. So it's best to communicate with us through Frontline Mission North America or order our books to them. Sadly, because our bookshops unable to do couriering beyond our borders. Within South Africa, we can do couriering through private courier companies, but that's cost prohibitive when we talk about overseas. So having a place in North America where we can distribute books uh, definitely is a great help to all our people. So visit our frontlinemissionsa.org website, and you can also find us on social media. If you want to email me personally, it's peter at frontline.org.za. Thank you, Dr. Hammond, and thank you, hearers, for joining us tonight. This is Ryan Underwood with From the Frontline, discussing the war on whites and farmers in South Africa. God bless and good night.